Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Coast New Vine for June 30th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, uh, excited to have you all both on. And in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk politics from the Tar Heel State with Dr. Michael Bencer, going to come on the show for about the third or fourth time, just a real expert from Catawba College on um, really national politics and North Carolina politics. And he may even give us his thoughts on the debate. But before that, we're going to give some thoughts on the debate. They had two nights, um, Wednesday and Thursday night, 10 candidates each night, two hours of debate, I guess I'm including commercial time in there, um, and it was quite a sight to say the least with so many candidates. I, I'm going to give y'all an overarching thought, and then I'm going to let y'all give y'all's thoughts. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a game that people would play, throw up tackle, tackle the man with the football, it had some other, uh, you know, less gentle names, I guess you'd say, and the purpose, if you'd never played it, it would have, you know, a throng of, you know, kids or people, maybe 10, 12, one person would have the ball, and the rest of them would run after that person and just knock them down and take the ball, Um, you know, violent game, and it was that one person had the target on their back, and that seemed to kind of be at points what both of the debates are uh, were. And now the second night made a little more sense. The front runner, Joe Biden, had the target on his back. But on the first night, it seemed a lot of like uh, Beto O'Rourke had the target on his back, and he was not the front runner. Elizabeth Warren was the, the best polling candidate, um, you know, of that first night. And I don't know how healthy that is for Democrats to, to be playing – you know, you, one person has the target on their back and everybody goes after them uh, as a debate strategy. It seems like there ought to be one guy with a target on his back and his name's Donald Trump and everybody goes after him. I know that they did do some of that, but it seems like some of the hardest shots were, you know, friendly fire, if you will. Uh, Tim, I know you watched every second of both debates and all kind of hours of recap. What are some of your thoughts on it? Well, uh, you know, you were talking about the the first night no one had a target on it on their back. I, I don't suppose they did. Elizabeth Warren uh, was the top polling candidate in that debate, and she talked a lot during the first part of the debate, and she did very well, I thought, but she kind of disappeared a little bit in the second part of the debate, had long stretches where she didn't say much of anything. Um, there was uh, one um, spirited exchange, and and um, Julian Castro went after Beto O'Rourke. Um, 
and uh, he really got the better better of that exchange too. But I, during that exchange, I was thinking, okay, where is the bad blood between these? And and the only thing I could think of, they're both from Texas, and maybe one Texas uh, politician chose to go after another, and Julian Castro was one that needed to get noticed, that needed to, you know, do do something uh, to get out there. Um, I kind of thought that he probably, uh, on the, the, the 10 candidates on the stage that first night, was possibly the best person up there. A lot of people thought Cory Booker was I can see a point there, and a lot of people thought that Elizabeth Warren was as well, because uh, unlike the second night, uh, the top polling candidate, the first night, Warren, pretty much escaped unscathed. She did not get in a in a very large back and forth, and to me, the second night's debate was far more interesting than the. Uh, debate on 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 the first night, and uh, I'll you know stop there. And let's see what Catherine has to say about all of it. Well, I thought um, I didn't feel like they were gunning. Anyone was gunning for anyone on the first night. I think um, the exchange between Beto O'Rourke and um, Julian Castro was really about policy. I think if anybody else had been there. It, I don't think it had anything to do with being from Texas. I think it was just that Julian Castro disagreed with uh, Beto's stance. It was about an immigration bill. I can't even remember all the details, but I think it was it was definitely a, a question of policy. I thought Elizabeth Warren did very well. Julian Castro was surprisingly confident and um, prepared and uh, very well-spoken, I thought. But I thought that by the, at the end of the night, my, um, my, re, re, my take was that three of, the, three of the candidates on the stage came away looking presidential, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and Jay Inslee. The rest of them didn't, did, and to a lesser extent, Julian Castro. But the rest of them just didn't, feel, didn't seem as confident or as, capable of um, handling themselves in a, in a, you know, sort of raucous debate. It wasn't that raucous, but um, I, I, I thought the rest of them, you know, they can just go home now. Beto was awful. I don't know mm-hmm. what happened to him, but he was just flat and, um, you know, didn't speak well, didn't re- really look that well. He looked a little pale. Uh, it was really kind of surprising, I thought. I, I mean, I really expected him to be to step up, but he did not. I, I think he's out. Yeah, Catherine, I'm glad you brought up Jay Inslee because, I mean, not that he was a big mover and shaker before this debate, and really he didn't get a lot of publicity after. But there was that exchange where he, and really it was because he was an executive. I mean, that's what it was about. He, he's been a governor. He passed a bill to protect uh, women's rights, um, to reproductive freedom. And then he also, right after that, he was mentioning that he passed a health care bill. 
And then um, Amy Klobuchar kind of, you know, broke in and, you know, basically said, well, there's been there's three other women on the stage or there's three women on the stage that have done a lot to protect women's right to choose. And um, and it seemed like she really, after the fact, they talked to her. She's very proud of that moment. But then I noticed the Daily Show kind of panned it. Um, what did you think about the way she kind of jumped in there when Ollie was kind of really what I mean, somebody said, you're an executive. That's why you could do that. I did not like any of the interruptions. I thought it was really disrespectful of everyone, of the audience, of the moderators. I, I just did not like it. I was so proud of Kamala Harris the next night when they were all going at it and she just shut it down. I, I just, I, I think it's, you know, they know what the rules are. They know how they're supposed to handle themselves. And everyone was misbehaving except uh, I don't think Elizabeth Warren interrupted anybody and, um, and Kamala didn't. Well, and I'll say something, and I think it was part of his strategy, is I saw a few of the shout fest where, you know, different candidates were trying to get the attention of everybody else. And actually, I did see a clip on the Daily Show, Kamala Harris was involved in one of those, but Joe Biden kind of laughed both times and just completely backed away. I think he figured if I have the lead going in and it turns into just chaos, then the less I'm out of the chaos, the better. Um, and then I saw those two clips where they showed that there may have been others because it was such a 10 candidate, um, uh, you know, mess at times when everybody was trying to get their extra minutes, if you will. Um, Are we talking about the second night now? Talking about the second night. Yes. So that was kind of, cause one point I okay. think Bernie Sanders won the, the big shout down, um, you know, and then an, another time I forgot well, who, but it was different folks were involved in it. And I don't think Pete Buttigieg, I don't think he got involved in as many of those either. I think there could be like a, a style difference as well if that was a, a well, positive or a negative for your personal style. We we, we named uh, Bernie Sanders Senator Shouty McShouterson because <laughs> he just would not stop shouting. I, I just, you know, I respect the man for all the things that he stands for, and I agree with him on something. But his demeanor is horrible. He just shouts all the time. I, I, I'm always like, stop shouting at me. You're not my father. Not my, my, my father didn't yell at me, but I, it just was very unpleasant. I thought Joe Biden uh, looked really arrogant on the second night. Like, he didn't think he really needed to be there. And he's the front runner. And, you know, he, he didn't seem to be taking any of it very seriously. I was very disappointed in him. Um, I thought Buttigieg came out about even. I don't think he gained anything. I don't think he lost anything. Kamala Harris was poised, eloquent, uh, very attractive, very um, engaging. I I mean, she looked very presidential, I thought. Um, Marianne Williamson is kooky, but, you know, Sometimes it's good to have that kooky voice. It's sort of, it's sort of like, um, what was that guy's name? Dennis Kucinich. Remember Dennis Kucinich? You sort of need to have that voice sometimes. Uh, Andrew Yang looked like he was bored, like, can I go home now? You know, he didn't have a tie on. But what did you yeah, think I, of the second night, Tim? Uh, 
Well, obviously Harris won the second debate. She had a she went in with a plan, and to her credit, uh, she pulled it off. And her staff her staff was even ready with the obligatory picture of her as as a girl to put up on on her website moments after um, she gut punched uh, Joe Biden, and that's. That's basically what she did. She she was waiting to spring it, and and she did a very 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 good job of doing so. Um, if I got to look at all of it, um, you know, here's a here's a bad debate for Biden. Uh, probably right. the rest of the top tier on both nights, except for Beto O'Rourke, did okay. He crashed and burned. Um, I think we're looking probably at a seven top-tier candidates now, Warren, Castro, Booker, Harris, Buttigieg, Sanders, and, and Biden. And I think Klobuchar and O'Rourke might hang around barely. To me, the others, you know, even though some of them might have did okay in the debate, they just don't seem to be moving, and, and they're probably just gonna gonna have to drop out because at some point their money's gonna gonna dry up, and and I think the the, the debates at least for the first time separated those people out. Yeah, I don't. One thing I mentioned, uh, Catherine. I think you mentioned Andrew Yang. I noticed the next day on Twitter that Andrew Yang and a lot of his supporters talked about the fact that he didn't get as much speaking time, and if it was some type of bias because he was Asian. And then somebody pointed out that Kamala Harris's mother is Indian, so she's half Asian, and she got the most speaking time. Um, and then somebody in the Yang camp or somebody, one of his supporters. Then said, "Oh well, uh, more than one said that she, you know, well, she doesn't even acknowledge her Indian heritage, and uh, which, of course, if you've read or listened to her books, she makes it real clear about how uh, uh, she feels about her mother. Uh, like most people do, she has total respect and love and admiration for her now deceased mother, and, and so it's very unfair. Um, I can really ask either one of y'all, but Catherine, if you want to go first. How does that look on Andrew Yang, that line of attack, um, both the attack and the re-attack on Kamala Harris? It just looks petty. I mean, he didn't get as many questions because, first of all, he wasn't answering them very well, the ones he did get. And he's not in the top tier. I, I mean, I think they did a pretty they, they did a pretty good job of spreading the questions around to everyone, but of course they're going to focus on the candidates that are, you know, in the lead in the polls. I mean, there's not really no other way to do it when you've got this many candidates, unless you go to three nights or something. So, I mean, I think I feel like Andrew Yang had a chance to, to you know, speak. I didn't feel like he was was uh, silenced or wasn't given any attention. I didn't feel that way at all. And yeah. I think that's a good shot. Well, and then, um, Tim, your thoughts on it, and then I'll have another question real quick. Tim? 
Uh, Andrew Yang, I thought he had plenty of chances to speak, and uh, unfortunately for him, he didn't take advantage of them. He, he, uh, he, he didn't come across well on, on television at all. He didn't come across like a political person at all. He came across like basically what he is, a businessman up there trying to talk about these sort of things and it just it ju- it just didn't didn't work for him uh uh I, I i don't see where he or his supporters have any uh have any gripes coming because he he got plenty of chances to to speak yeah, and one other t- uh, person that kind of notable about the people that didn't go into the debate with a lot of uh, you know solid poll numbers, but then um, kind of forced their way in, uh, John Delaney, which I don't think anybody talks about him uh, in any real way. Uh, he kind of forced his way on to the end of the conversation, particularly about health care. Um, I don't know that it'll translate to anything else, uh, but Catherine, what are your thoughts on? John Delaney coming out kind of kind of nowhere on that first night. Uh, you know, I kind of liked him the first time I saw him on uh, on uh, like the View, I think. But I don't know. He seemed a little. Uh, he seemed uh, like he was trying too hard to dis- to distinguish himself from the pack, and it just made him look kind of weak. I wasn't impressed. Yeah, Tim. Uh, he did kind of, you know, get more sound bites that made the wrap-up shows, if you will. Um, what was your thoughts? Well, he he did talk about things like you know a, a price on on carbon and uh, you know some. I thought when he was talking, he he was just doing okay. He he was some one of them that was a little pushy. And I and I understand that some of them felt that that they had to be some of the one percenters and below, but uh, I I would I, I would just have to say that he was okay. I I, I wasn't obviously as impressed with him as you uh, as you seem to be. I, I didn't I didn't see anything special out of him. Well, I'm impressed with the fact that he got he got more attention than his .5 uh, poll rating going in would uh, dictate. He made a lot of attention on um, you know the wrap up shows and all. Which, I mean, like people like Michael Bennett didn't even make it. He he gave one excellent answer on you know as a support of unions, which which was uh, very yeah, well was received in the room. Uh, but he still seemed at times like he was just somehow trying to get a word in, and it got on my nerves after a time. Yes, and that's once again about the whole structure. Well, we'd like to welcome our guest in for uh, at least the third time from Catawba College, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Welcome. Good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, good to have you on. Well, Michael, since we're talking about this thing, um, and you, uh, I know, tweeted a lot about the both debates, um, you know, during and, and after the fact, um, what were some of your general thoughts on the two nights? You know, it, it almost felt like there were a couple weeks in between the evenings because they were so different in nature, in style, in approach. 
Uh, I thought the first night, certainly Elizabeth Warren uh, pretty much cemented her top tier candidacy. I would put her, I would certainly put uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, uh, and and now Kamala Harris into that kind of first tier that, you know, we may see the eventual nominee come from. Now, there is still a lot of time between now and uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina, uh, not to mention the rest of the primaries going out. But, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren had her command of the first evening and, and certainly had that opportunity to put herself forward where she didn't have to compete with others kind of in, in the first tier who were on the second evening. The second evening, uh, I, I will be honest, I was in and out of it because <laughs> I was dealing with a partisan gerrymandering Supreme Court decision handed down earlier <laughs> that morning. And for about 10 hours, I was fielding calls about, well, what does this mean? What does this portend for North Carolina? And by the time I got to, to 9 o'clock, I was like, this has been a long day. <laughs> but, I, but I think um, – you know, Biden seemed a little rusty. Uh, he 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 didn't. It didn't come across to me that he had prepared for a lot of what was going to come to him. Because certainly, if you are the front runner, that means you've got the biggest target on your back. And I think you know some of the early polls coming out has seen a little bit of slippage on on his part. Uh, certainly, the evening belonged to Kamala Harris, and and I thought you know. Others had good evenings, uh, but, you know, there's going to be a quick winnowing process, and there typically always is. There's, there's going to be your top tier. Maybe there's a second tier and then the bottom tier, and I think for, for lack of, of anything else, money is going to drive so much of what, you know, availability people are going to have to participate moving forward. Uh, tonight is, is kind of the end of of this campaign uh, reporting cycle. So we'll start to get some numbers out from some of the candidates. And I think it's just a, a matter of time before some of them start to drop by the wayside because they just don't have the funds to, to go any further. Yes. Well, since you bring it up, I'm going to move on to that uh, next issue you had to deal with, uh, that redistricting decision. And we know North Carolina's districts, uh, have, have been a big bone of contention for a while. Uh, essentially, before the last elections, those maps were thrown out, but then they said we can't throw them out because there's no time to, to, to redo yeah. the ballots. Kind of tell us uh, what your thoughts on North Carolina lines are and how this decision affects them. Well, I mean, North Carolina has been portrayed, and I think rightly so, as a very competitive state. Uh, Democrats won the gubernatorial race in 2016 when Donald Trump uh, won the state by a little under four percentage points. So I, I continuously describe North Carolina as being a center lean right state. Uh, but with the Republicans win in 2010, they completely controlled the redistricting process. And what they did was basically drew congressional district maps that, uh, as the chairman of the redistricting committee said, I drew a map that will elect 10 Republicans and three Democrats because I couldn't draw a map that would elect 11 Republicans and only two Democrats. 
So, you know, the intensity of these congressional maps and uh, how voters are party loyalists, they basically vote straight ticket down the ballot, uh, very much has been an issue here in this state. And a lot of people were expecting the, the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and say, no, this is too egregious. When, when one party wins 53 percent of the vote statewide, but they win 75 percent of the, of the seats, uh, that, that's a little extreme. And even Chief Justice Roberts, in his majority opinion, acknowledged that these were some extremely drawn partisan gerrymandered districts. But he said the courts can't intervene because there is no standard by which we can adjudicate and resolve these kinds of issues. So it it was basically a punt by the U.S. Supreme Court over what is called the political question. It was just it's too highly partisan. It's too political for the courts, at least the federal courts, to get involved. Now, here in North Carolina, there is a state case that is working its way through the court system, and ultimately the North Carolina Supreme Court will likely rule on it, and that's where I would think the best chance for those challenging these maps would have because it's a six Democrats to one Republican uh, advantage on the court. Yes. Well, uh, there's still plenty to talk about in North Carolina, uh, both as congressional, the governor, the U.S. Senate race, and how to build a presidential. And I'm going to leave the lion's share of that to Catherine and Tim. Uh, Catherine, your questions for Dr. Michael Bitzer. Hey, thanks for being on tonight. I, I know your day on Thursday must have been quite intense. <laughs> we were all watching, and uh, – and we're here in Georgia, so I, I uh, we were we were watching some of the other decisions uh, where I where I hang out. So sure. um, I, I want to, you know, I see that uh, your state is, you know, like you said, it's sort of reddish purple, I guess you might mm-hmm. say. And what do we need to do? Like, what is the next step for the party or for? Uh, you know, progressives and, and, and Democrats in general to like push it forward for Democrats. Um, like what, 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 what needs to happen? Is it like a question of organizing um, uh, people on the ground or is it, you know, making sure we have good candidate? I mean, I know it's all these things, but is there anything that you think is lacking that would help push it? Yeah, I I think from a Democratic perspective, I would point back to 2008. And, you know, if if you had asked me in January of 2008, would a Democrat win North Carolina at the presidential level? I would have to, first off, pick up my jaw and say, well, if you look back at 2000 and 2004 – North Carolina went for George W. Bush by 13 percentage points. So t- tell me <laughs> how a, a, a Democratic Party and campaign can make up 13 percentage points uh, in order to be competitive. And what happened in 2008 was the Barack Obama campaign looked at the voter rolls 
and looked on the ground and said, you know what, there are a lot of people that have never voted before that would vote Democratic. So I think the intensity of the ground game, the grassroots mobilization, the organization, you know, really helped to solidify a more than 13-point bounce to the Democrats to give Barack Obama, you know, half of a percentage point win in this state. Now, what that did was it woke the Republican Party up from complacency, and they were able to take it back in in, uh, 2012, but only by two percentage points, and then four points in 2016. So I'm not, you know, I, I, when I teach my campaigns and elections class, I say, you know, candidates can either try to persuade voters to vote for them, or they can mobilize. And I think North Carolina is a prime example of getting people mobilized because so many people's minds are already made up. Uh, There are very few, maybe 13, maybe 10 percent of the electorate is kind of this classic swing voter. Uh, The rest of the electorate, much like the country writ large, is very much locked into voting for one party over the other at levels of 80, 85, 95% of the time. So for North Carolina Democrats, you know, we've we've got the big 3 next year. It's it's the presidential, it's a US Senate race and it's a governor's race. And they're going to be defending the governor's race, but depending on who the candidate is against Tom Tillis, who has, you know, very soft approval ratings at this point and in terms of Trump, uh, he's sitting at around 45, 46 percent approval, slightly higher disapproval. You know, there, there is some room to work there if mobilization and grassroots efforts pay off. That's, that's good news, I think. Thank you. I'm going to pass it to Tim. I know he has a whole list of questions for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, good evening, Dr. Bitzer. Uh Thank you for being on with us again tonight. Uh, My pleasure. I, I, I know that gerrymandering was obviously a very important word in the political world in North Carolina the other day, but mm-hmm. will gerrymandering be an issue that the average voter will care about up there? You know, I think for the average North Carolina voter, they, they will have heard the term, but maybe not be able to relate as closely as, as maybe some other issues. But I think for the diehard partisans on both sides, uh, they know it and they know it well. And so Republicans, what they did in 2011 was basically buy themselves a pretty healthy insurance policy over this past decade, just about, um, to, to be able to solidify not just the congressional level, but also at the state legislative uh, level. What Democrats need to do, and they understand partisan gerrymandering, is to at least try and capture one of the chambers of the General Assembly next year, because that's where all the power resides with redrawing districts. Uh, the governor has no say-so, has no veto power over the redistricting bill. It is strictly legislative approval. 
So mm-hmm. what Democrats were able to do in 2018 was bite into the supermajority. Now they've got to get an even bigger hurdle to overcome to at least capture one of the two chambers in the state. So I think it's a very you know, strong partisan felt uh, initiative on, on both sides. But for your probably average voter, um, you know, they, they, they have heard the term, but they're not real sure maybe how it directly impacts them on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, that the Democrats need to flip one of the chambers in the legislature. I was looking at the numbers just today. In the state house, the Republicans have a 65-55 advantage, and in the, over mm-hmm. the state Senate, a 29-21 advantage. Not uh, a huge mountain to climb, but still, uh, how realistic are the chances that the Democrats could flip one of the chambers next year? Well, the, the the way that I look at it was, you know, both chambers had super majorities of Republicans going into the 2018 election. So, you know, the, the, the big hope for North Carolina Democrats last year was at least to break one of the chambers, to, to, to win enough seats, particularly in suburban North Carolina, to be able to you know, stop the supermajority and the veto override of the governor. They were very fortunate to get both chambers. Now, what that means was those districts that were primarily urban to mostly suburban districts flipped to the Democrats. Where they now go for the next round to maybe break one of the and, and flip one of the chambers means that these districts now become much more rural in nature. And that's been part of the the issue with the Democratic Party is that they've got very strong candidates, but they tend to reside in urban and suburban North Carolina. Once you get into rural North Carolina, it's a very conservative area, much like in Georgia. And, you know, they have to find the right candidate to play to that particular district. And I think that's what they're going to have to do to at least get one of the chambers to flip. Which one it is, I really have no idea. I think the Senate is harder because the districts are just more drawn rurally uh, for Republican advantage. But, you know, anything could potentially happen in 2020 in a very competitive environment. Mm-hmm. Um I want to ask you about one of those legislators as as my final question because this 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 gentleman seems to be a little bit on the um unbelievable side of of reality. Um his name is Representative Larry Pittman. And I read that this gentleman, among other things, actually compared Abraham Lincoln to Adolf Hitler. What in the world is the story with this guy? Is he just a a, a nut? Or <laughs> okay, um, Representative Pittman is a representative just south. Of, of where I live in Rowan County. He's in Cabarrus County, 
which is north of, of Charlotte. Uh, he is a minister, and I think, you know, if you looked at the spectrum of, you know, hardcore social evangelical conservatives, uh, he's pretty much to the right of them. So he, he has a very strong constituency base of deeply conservative voters, and he, you know, I, there, there have been some astonishing statements before. He, he wants to um, nullify U.S. Supreme Court decisions uh, in the state of North Carolina. He introduced a bill uh, in order to do that. That that would, you know, be unconstitutional. Um, but <laughs> he has. A, a distinct personality, and I'm, I'm trying to be as, as diplomatic as I can, but when I heard those comments, I thought, well, I, I heard actually heard the statement, and my first reaction was, uh, I think that sounds like something Representative Pittman would say, and <laughs> lo and behold, it was. So um, we have our cast of characters as all southern states do, and, and most other states as well. Uh, it's, it's much like the saying, you know, we, we, we all have crazy people in our family. It's just in the south we tend to put them out on the front porch and, uh, you know, display them that way. So uh, we don't hide them inside, needless to say. Yeah, but, but, but how do responsible voters then go to the polls and vote? For a person who would say these things, is it because he uh, goes to Raleigh and votes the way they want him to vote on legislative yes. matters? Is that what keeps someone like him in office? Yes, and and in fact, uh, Cabarrus County is is considered to be a, a suburban surrounding suburban county of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. And in the research that I do, suburban counties in North Carolina are the most Republican uh, counties of the three kind of urban, suburban, and rural divide. So this, this, is, this is not unheard of to have this hardcore of a conservative from, from a suburban county, uh, but, but it is very much he espouses a very hardcore conservative belief, and his voters, even after the districts have been redrawn, send him back to Raleigh. Wow. And with that, I'm going to save the congressional stuff for David, who I'm sure has got some questions about that 10-3 Republican split up there. So go ahead, David. Yes, just all kind of things y'all have left me. But let's talk about two congressional races in particular, one which I believe may be more competitive than the other, but they're both open. The third mm -hmm. congressional seat became open when um, Congressman um, Walter Jones passed away earlier this year. And then the other right. one is a whole other story in itself in District <laughs> 9. Uh, you may want to take the, the easier one first, which is um, the, the third district. Yeah, the, the third district, uh, you know, Walter Jones was an institution, and he was very willing to buck 
his own party and the party leadership in Washington, and his voters loved him for it. And and when he passed, it was a it was a wide open field. Uh, they're having to do a runoff for the Republican nomination. That's a pretty safe Republican seat, so I would be surprised if the Democrats were able to pick that one up. Probably make it more competitive than it usually is, just simply because of the dynamics of an open seat. But you're right, the ninth congressional district. Um, you know, you could do an entire show just on the ninth congressional district and still not be able to get through <laughs> everything. Uh, that that district, you know, it 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 was, we think, a 905 vote difference between the Republican and Democrat last year in 2018 with the Democratic wave that kind of came through the state. I, I'm kind of rethinking how I'm looking at this race this year because there isn't that kind of momentum that had built up in 2018 that's present. Certainly Democrats are energized and mobilized, but it is still very much a, a Trump uh, 56% district uh, in 2016. So that's going to be hard for Democrats to, to kind of get back into an energy level that will help to propel them through. But, you know, anything could happen in this year's uh, election cycle leading into 2020. So we'll just have to see what what happens in September in the general election. Yes. Um, and then the next uh, question I want to ask you about, and I guess this probably end up being our final thing, is the U.S. Senate race. Uh, we had a mm-hmm. um, Republican blogger on a few weeks ago, and we said, what's a race that you know people aren't looking at that they should? And he mentioned Tom Tillis's reelection campaign is a Senate race to watch um how competitive do you think it'll be i think it will be highly competitive it it will be depending on you know the top of the ticket the presidential race but what tom tillis has strategically done here in the past couple of months is align himself very closely to president trump he's got a republican uh challenger who is also trying to out trump uh tom tillis that's going to make for an interesting, you know, competition come the, the primary. I think Tillis will survive that. The question is, does he get too close to the president, and does the president's popularity or lack thereof drag him down just as much as anybody else would? Uh, I think on the Democratic side, it's kind of an, a wide-open field, but there is uh, Cal Cunningham, who uh, is a fairly moderate uh, Democrat who would likely be the front runner at this point, but we're waiting to see if other names, you know, other candidates throw their hat into the ring, and we'll just have to see how that plays out. But it, it is going to be one of the most competitive, and Democrats need North Carolina to pick up uh, any seats that they may potentially lose, like Alabama next year, uh, in order to gain a majority in the, the U.S. Senate. So it's going to be one of the races to watch, I think. Yes. Well, I tell you what, we have covered a ton of topics, and I still feel like there were things we didn't even get to, but that's okay because hopefully uh, it wasn't too painful and you're willing to come on again in the future to discuss some North Carolina politics. Anytime. Glad to do it. Always fun. Thank you, Thank sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
Yes. Dr. Michael Bentzer, um, Bowtie Politics, you can find him there. He has a very active Twitter feed. Um, One of the real exciting people to uh, follow and and read on North Carolina politics. As he was saying, when there's something that happens in the state, he's one of those go-to voices that that folks um, seek out. And I'm so glad to have him on our show to talk about because North Carolina, man, they do have the races this year. No doubt. Um, well, guys, we still did not cover one final thing about the debate, and I feel like we got to uh, talk about it, and that was the fallout from it. And we have one poll that's come out, a morning consult poll, and it did show some of the things that I think everybody's kind of agreed on, including Dr. Bitzer, that Kamala Harris is doing better. She's up. Uh, Joe Biden's down a little bit. Um Bernie Sanders did not move. He stayed exactly the same, even though he wasn't a huge factor other than, you know, yelling um, uh, over everybody. But he he didn't have a lot of sound bites and whatnot. And then the winner of the first night, in many people's assumptions, Julian Castro, did not even register in the the top-line findings. So, therefore, people said, oh, he did really well but it didn't translate into poll numbers yet. Um, Tim, you've seen that poll. What are some of your thoughts on that thing? Yeah, that that was um, that that was something that surprised me, too, that Castro did not move at all. Uh, you mentioned Biden dropping uh, five points and, and Harris uh, sub- subsequently picking up five points. Uh, where she is now tied with Warren for third place. Sanders didn't move. Buttigieg uh, is at six. I I would have thought he might have uh, ticked up a little bit higher. Booker is at three. Then we have O'Rourke now down to two. And somehow Yang is still saying... Staying at, at 2%, I, I will say one thing for his followers. Uh, they are a devoted uh, group. Um, but I don't, really, I don't really know what else to say about it, but I, I still think we've got, uh, you know, what Dr. Bitzer said, we've got that uh, top tier now of four people and, and a medium tier of about, uh, you know, four or five more, and then I'm not sure what that leaves for the other 15 or so uh, candidates to to do. And and I think he's right that now one of the fallouts from this debate is that obviously there's not going to be enough money uh, and supporters for. 24 candidates, and, and now they're going to have to show that they have 130,000 donors to even make the stage at the next debate. I, I, I know Catherine's probably seen this, especially on Facebook, and so have I. Candidates are already actively seeking for people to just give them a dollar, be a donor, give them a dollar, even if you're not going to vote for them, they say, even if you support somebody else, give them a dollar so that they can count you as a donor. I'm getting a a plethora of emails about that, Um, and and I think we'll 
you know, those of us who are activists will get absolutely bombarded in coming weeks about this because now the attention after this week or so of fallout from this debate uh, turns us to the next debate. But I, I think one thing we've got that we didn't have before the two debates is this not set in stone now who our nominee's going to be? And I think it probably was before that point. Don't you, Catherine? Well, I don't think it was. I never thought it was. Um, but I do think that it um, it certainly – we certainly saw that there were other candidates who are up to the task. And I think that was an important step for everyone. Um, I did hear um, on Friday that um, Vice President Biden has lost some financial support from some major donors due to the um, busing question and also some of the other things that he said in the past couple weeks. So it was a West Coast donor. uh, I don't know who it was, but it was just there was an article about it. I don't know where, somewhere. Um, So... I guess that's what the other, that's what's going to happen next is donors are going to start shifting. Those who are supporting someone like Beto or um, Amy Klobuchar and um, Kirsten Gillibrand are going to start looking at other candidates, I, I believe, because I think those candidates are um, – I don't think they made a significant appearance at the, at the debates, and they're going to need to – they're either going to need to convince their donors that they've got something, some other plan up their sleeve, or they're going to start, you know, losing some of those donors. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so David, what's your that, take? Well, some of the ones that do run kind of a the uh, more um, cash uh, reliant campaign, they're going to be the one, and they don't have the money coming in. They're the ones that are going to have to drop out first. Like you may see a sitting senator or two that drops out faster than you will some of these other candidates, and you're like, well, they've never held office just because they rely on more traditional fundraising means and they're running a campaign that's uh, you know more cash needy, and so it may kind of get kind of disjointed. Like, why did that person drop out before that person? Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's that'll a good point. Yeah, and I mean, once we see the names, we're like, that's what I was talking about. Um, but, and, and I'll tell you this, um, I wonder if, if Julian Castro shows no gain in the next few polls and he had such a good night, what's his ceiling? I mean, does he say, hey, if I do this well and it doesn't translate to numbers, what's going on here? I, I think that may be somebody that kind of surprises that people might, that may, he may have to um, drop out as well, just because um, there's no, um, you know, momentum there for whatever reason. And talking about Andrew Yang, hey, people are looking forward to that thousand dollars a month. That's why they won't give him up. Nobody else is promising <laughs> cash. So, um, actually, seriously, if, if in the future we could get him as a guest after this runs over and talk about that concept in that book, it would be a fascinating discussion. Um, but now let's it's move on to something idea. else. What is that? It's not a new idea. No, I mean, it, but he wrote a very, 
long book uh, on it. I, I, I think it could be with some tweaks where you get people to do certain things, but that's a whole other discussion. We'll never get to other topics. Um, I want to talk about this. It's a Georgia-based show, and the guy did have to hold the presidency, so he knows a little bit about this whole deal. Um, this past week, Jimmy Carter publicly came out and said, you know, with the way Russia interfered, and we pretty much know Russia interfered, regardless of what the Mueller report found out, if anybody um, on the Trump campaign broke the law to make that happen, he's an illegitimate president. He went and said it. He's been criticized by some people from saying it. Um, some people have backed him up. Now, of course, Donald Trump wanted to go the other way. He thinks he deserves two free years just because this, uh, these questions were asked about him. But Jimmy Carter says he didn't deserve his first two years because he's illegitimate. Um, Tim, how big a deal is this is that a former president, somebody that's kind of made a name for themselves traveling throughout the globe, holding uh, democratic elections, that he comes out and says this about this past election. Yeah, and I mean, he said it in the starkest of terms, too. He said, I think a full investigation would show that Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election, and he was put into office because the Russians interfered on his behalf. Of course, it was the biggest deal to Donald Trump because he 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 cannot let any criticism of him, whether it be a blue collar worker in Ohio or a former president. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who 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 is doing it. He he he's got to respond, and his response naturally was, "Well, he was a terrible president." And, it's a Democrat talking point, and he's like the forgotten president. Now, I, I find that one interesting. <laughs> I mean, really, the man's won a Nobel Prize, among other things, since his presidency ended and written best-selling books and everything. As a matter of fact, he seems to have been uh, m more known since the time of his presidency instead of less known. Um, I I don't know how big of a fallout we would we we would see uh, uh, among others, uh, or, or if it would move any needles. But but it is it's an interesting time we're in when uh, an, an ex president you know says something like this about the current occupant of the White House and over half the country, instead of being up in arms, says, well, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, uh, what he said was exactly right, and I'm glad he did it. Yes. Uh, and, Catherine, I guess there's just such two different individuals. Uh, one man, um, you know, he's had three wives, and apparently he's not faithful to the third one either. Um the other man has one of the most you know, strong, longest enduring marriages in presidential history. Uh, one man uh, bought uh, pictures of himself and bought other stuff uh, for charity and called it charity. The other man put Habitat for Humanity on the map um, and it continues to build houses even in his 90s um, with his very own hands. Uh, one man uh, doesn't even know one Corinthians from two Corinthians, and the other person has made uh, Sunday school the hottest ticket in, you know, 9 o'clock in Georgia 
Um, and, and so they're just very different individuals uh, beyond everything else. Um, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, you know, I absolutely adore President Jimmy Carter. He is one of my favorite people in the world. He was the first president I ever voted for. First time I ever voted was for Jimmy Carter. And I just have so much admiration for him uh, as a president. And uh, his post-presidency has been absolutely extraordinary. And uh, for uh, Donald Trump, for President Trump to go after him, it's almost like, um, like pick somebody else. Like you could pick almost anyone else to go after and maybe find some flaws. But, I mean, I'm sure Jimmy Carter has plenty of flaws. He's a human being just like everybody else. But his certainly his public persona is very um, endearing. And I think a lot of people, even if they didn't like him as a president, even if they're, you know, true to their souls, Republicans, they still have admiration for him because of all the things that he's done. So I just think it's, it's like he went after the wrong person. Like, find somebody else to go after. And, and yes, and I, of course, Carter was absolutely right. I mean, he like like Tim said, or one of you said, um, you know, he spent a lion's share of his post presidency traveling around the world, uh, making sure that elections are properly executed, and to go after him. I, I mean, the whole thing. Donald Trump doesn't know who he's messing with, I think. Yes, and, and, and the fact that he's gotten older and, you know, more statesmanlike as he goes along, that doesn't yeah. help Donald Trump's case. There's somebody where age has given them wisdom. Um, we're not sure what age has given Donald Trump. Um, well, we've got like three minutes. Um, uh Donald Trump went over to North Korea. Uh, actually, he's the first president to step foot in North Korea. I'm not sure if another president went to Korea before the Korean War and then stepped foot in that part of the soil, or if Donald Trump's the first president to actually, you know, step foot in North Korea. But um, that's what happened this morning. Um, Catherine, what's your take on this? He just keeps embracing, you know, dictators and, you know, evil people. I don't understand it. I don't understand that what his, um, what the win might be, but I, I'm very disgusted by it. I, I, I can't really say anything more than that. Tim, your thoughts? We already know, of course, that that nothing's gonna come of this. He he's talking about, oh, we're gonna, uh, you know, start up these nuclear talks, and we're gonna do this, and we're gonna do that, and we're gonna do the other thing. But we really know what this was. This was a publicity stunt. Donald Trump wants to be the central figure in the news in this country. And that looked like a very good way to be the central figure in the news this day, and it worked. He's a creature of television. If he doesn't know anything else, he knows how to be on TV and sell his own personal brand on television because he's a reality television star. That's what this was 
all about. And I'm with Catherine. I'm a, I've about had it with this buddy buddying with a bunch of dictators and enemies of this country. I understand we've got to talk to to uh, uh, the, these people and all, but say that we swapped letters and fell in love with each other and he's my good <laughs> friend. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's, that's killed uncles and brother-in-laws and stepbrothers and everything else and had them killed in foreign countries even. And, and you know, he, he's talking about how they're his good friends and how he wishes that he could be more like them and how he wishes his country could be more like theirs and stuff like that. I just get sick of listening to it, don't you? Oh, definitely. And I'll tell you this, Donald Trump's somebody that likes, you know, chest-puffing contests. And it seems strange that he always goes to Asia and doesn't demand that Kim Jong-un come to America. And I understand he doesn't fly, but you could say, look, you better get over that fear. You better come to my home court, you know, if you're somebody that thinks like Donald Trump. Now, here's the, you know, the bigger situation is you've got all these countries across the world. And no, there's not enough time or resources to solve every problem in every part of the world and, and everywhere that might uh, want to have conflict with you. But Julian Castro, to me, gave one of the best lines of the debate on that first night when he talked about, you know, he talked about Paul coming to the border, and he says, you know, we need to go to Honduras, Guatemala, and uh, Nicaragua. Was that the third country? He said, we need to go to these countries and find out what can we do to help solve this crisis so all these people don't want to come. Well, if you're Donald Trump and you know your base is so scared of all of these people crossing the border – why don't you go to those countries and try to find out the root of the problem, find out how America could help where these people don't want to leave their country. They can stay in their own country where they would rather be, like said, and it's a win-win situation. Your base gets to worry, you know, not worry about their greatest fears. But then the other side says that's the humanitarian thing to do because now that country's a better place and those people can stay where they want to stay. Um, to me, that would be a better political move for him and a better governmental move to do what's right uh, for the people of the world um, instead David, of this nonsense with photo ops. Catherine? David, that would require yes. a whole lot of work. And David, and, and David <laughs> Donald Trump does not want to do all that work. I, I know, I know. I mean, he's re- yeah. honestly, he's really not capable of that work. Uh, and he doesn't have uh, a capable uh, team behind him to do that work. Yeah, because most of them have quit, and the ones that are still around are the, the, the worst of the worst. Uh, I, I, right. I was telling you all during the week, I've listened to Siege. Uh, I recommend it. Um, you will be shocked at whatever you thought Donald Trump didn't know, he knows even less. Uh, it, it is baffling um, how unprepared he is. Well, thanks again to Michael Bencer of uh, Bowtie Politics for coming on the show. And until next week, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, Good night y'all. Right. Happy Fourth of July. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs.
years of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love 